Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with award-winning science journalist Maria Gallucci. She's a bilingual reporter who has had global experience with an emphasis on reporting about energy and the environment. One of her specialties is reporting about the container ship industry. She is a former University of Texas Energy Journalism Fellow and has worked for Mashable, International Business Times, Makeshift Media, and Inside Climate News. She talks with us about science reporting and some of the issues she confronts as a freelance journalist. Maria, you are a freelance environmental writer. Um, I know you have some specialties, and we'll talk about those in a bit, but what is a freelance environmental writer? Yeah, so freelance means essentially that I work with various publications, and I'm writing on a story-by-story basis. So there are publications that will come to me and say, uh, hey, we have this story we'd like to cover, and we know that you've written about this topic before. Could you do a piece for us? Um, most of the time, it's me going out and saying, hey, I have this idea. I've done some initial reporting. Here's what I think it could look like, and then we'll kind of work on it. So rather than working in a newsroom for one dedicated publication, I'm doing pieces for various publications. So most of the time, you're not doing breaking news. So how long does it take for you to do a piece? It really depends. Um, Sometimes I do uh, not exactly breaking news, but um, time-sensitive stories. So it could be uh, filing a piece within a day, or um, it could be working on a piece over a month or longer, Um, especially with freelance and if there's not as much urgency then we can really take our time. And my editors are juggling other commitments too, so it's not you know, just my story all the time. So who has the market? I know you've, I've read some things that you've written for Wired recently, but uh, who, who else is in the market for your, your pieces? Sure, so I've written a lot of pieces for IEEE Spectrum. Um, actually, uh, Amy Nordrum, who's coming on to be uh, uh, the, right, the next. Right, she's coming in a couple of weeks. Exactly, to visit yeah. Us, yeah. So she uh, is a Honors Tutorial College alum as well and um, is an editor there. Um, but I write a lot for their Energy Wise blog about clean energy technology and for their magazine. Um, I just published a piece today for Yale Environment 360. Um, I've written for Grist, which is an environment focused publication. So you have developed specialty over over your career, and if, if I read your background correctly, one is clean 
energy development, and the other one is environmental issues in the worldwide maritime cargo shipping industry. How in the world did you pick that latter one as a specialty? It sort of happened um, just as a, a natural development of my work um, on clean energy technologies. I was looking for um, kind of something that maybe wasn't getting as much coverage overall, something that was a little bit more uh, niche that I could really focus on. And I really came about it because I learned about this movement to revive sailing cargo ships, kind of old-fashioned, windblown ships. And there's this growing group of people, still very small, but they want to bring these ships back and deliver cargo kind of carbon-free in this way. So once I started learning more about them and learning more about the ships that they have and the movement, I started really diving into the conventional cargo shipping industry. And I just found it really fascinating because what it, what it will take to really transform this fleet of cargo ships that we have will be it, – it's pretty um, – it's a pretty huge effort. So I think it's interesting to watch how that's that's playing out. So the environmental impacts of these big cargo ships, uh, give us a thumbnail of, of that. Is it just the petroleum and the pollution of the ships themselves? Or how, how do they impact the environment? Sure. So um, like you mentioned, there's sort of the air pollution related to burning uh, petroleum cargo ships. Uh, mo- most of them use heavy fuel oil. It's also called bunker fuel, and it's kind of has more sulfur, um, more uh, elements than other blends of petroleum, and therefore it emits a lot more air pollution that can harm uh, the ecosystems, human health, especially um, not as refined, perhaps. Exactly. Well, okay. it's the it's the dregs of the refining process. Got it. Okay. Gasoline, you know, is up there, kind of toward the top. This is what's left over. It's it's as thick as molasses. So it's cheaper, and it it certainly is not as as pollutant free as as others, right? It, exactly. Yeah. And and so in addition to the fuel, there is um, pollution re- related to um, the ballast water, which is what ships use to balance themselves when they offload the cargo. Um, but the effect of these ships traveling from maritime ecosystem to another ecosystem is that they spread invasive species. Um, and in general, even sort of the wood that might be used in a container or to pack the cargo can spread invasive species. So they sort of have this effect of breaking down borders, which is great for trade, but also uh, facilitates the spread of a lot of these other factors. You were talking about the fuel, and you said that it was dangerous to health. Is it a major impact with people who work on these ships? That's an interesting question. I am, haven't really thought about it in terms of the the workers. I don't think it necessarily is because the, um, the smokestacks are pretty high, the funnels are pretty high above the ship. Where you really see a lot of impact is in port communities or even communities where, um, especially in uh, Asia, where they live along these really busy shipping lanes. So the effect of one ship on the workers uh, is probably a lot less than it would be the kind of cumulative effect on uh, of many ships on a so community. So it, it's not necessarily comparative to uh, black lung in coal miners. Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. So 
you went to the University of Texas at Austin on an energy journalism fellowship uh, last year, 2017, 2018. What was that, and how did you find it, and why did you do it? <laughs> sure. So essentially the fellowship, uh, one way to think about it is as a, like a research grant. They, uh, The Energy Institute at the University of Texas, essentially uh, every year they give a working journalist a chance to just dive deeply into one particular energy-related topic. They uh, give you resources, um, office space, and I'm not even sure how I found out about it, but somehow through my um, – through a colleague or the Environmental Journal channels. And that's actually what really made me decide to pursue this focus on the maritime industry is um, wanting to have a singular topic to dive into and being able to take advantage of this fellowship. The idea is that in a newsroom, you know, we're constantly cranking out stories. There's not really the freedom to sit down and cultivate sources and just go through the stacks and read old books about and, and the industry. And do the research. Exactly. And, and become a, a quasi-expert yourself. Exactly, yeah. So that's a, a great opportunity to just take the time to do that. Is the area you're studying, the, the maritime environmental impacts, uh, is this a, a specialty that not many people are looking at? Or would you say that you're one of the authorities in that area? I'm not sure – uh, if I'd call myself an authority, but I would say I'm, I'm one of the few journalists who are focusing on this issue that maybe don't work for an industry publication, who, who are kind of, uh, as a general environmental reporter, are specializing this. I don't think there are very many of us. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, shipping sort of exists in this other realm. You know, we don't see it or interact with it very much in our daily lives. It's always sort of over there, you know. It's not like seeing a train go by <laughs> or an airplane or... Exactly, and it's easy to forget how much of our lives, uh, especially kind of in recent decades, have been facilitated by the movement of goods on cargo ships. You, you mentioned, and I know I'm jumping around a bit, but I, I wanted to go back. You, you mentioned this wind to uh, promote or... or uh, for cargo ships to use, I mean, that's centuries old. Mm -hmm. Is that viable? Um, no, not from a <laughs> <laughs> not from a pure economic point of view. Exactly. Right? I think what these folks are trying to do is really carve out their own niche and say, maybe in the same way that there are people who are willing to pay a lot more for fair trade organic specialty coffee, maybe they would be able willing to pay a little bit more to have that fair trade organic coffee that came delivered on a sailing cargo ship. So they're trying to really find these these spaces in the economy where they can, where it makes sense. Um, but I think there's uh, a recognition that it would be impossible to do what we do today in terms of the flow of cargo and, and the, um, the volumes of cargo with these vessels. Being a freelancer, I know, gives you a degree of freedom. Um, it probably gives you a degree of anxiety, too, sometimes <laughs> when you don't know whether the next story is coming or when it's coming or or, it, or how soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, there's um, something that – and I talk with this a lot about uh, with my friends who are also freelancers – is getting over this 
guilt because there is this freedom, but you think, well, I can't just you know, go to the gym right now in the middle of the day, I need to be working. <laughs> so you feel like because you're not um, kind of living this sort of nine to five office life, you should still be mimicking that at home. So it's a lot of, and yes, you're absolutely right. Sort of the financial anxiety is, is real um, because a lot of times too, you know, the editors I work with are great and I get paid on time and they're very respectful of that. But I know other freelancers do have issues, even for major publications having to hound them to say, pay me my few hundred dollars. I need to pay my rent. And the, there's there's often a delay <laughs> between publication and payment, I assume. Yes, absolutely. It could take a month or so for me to receive a payment um, unless it's being directly deposited. Now, this... Uh, freedom that you have uh, allows you, I assume, to try other projects, longer form writing, books perhaps uh, in your future? Is is this something that you're interested in doing? Absolutely. So as, as part of the um, fellowship that we were talking about at the University of Texas, um, I began working on uh, what I hope will become a nonfiction book on clean energy development in the cargo shipping industry. So that's still something I'm pursuing, and it's still something I'm continuing to write uh, while I do sort of the, the freelance stories, the more sort of current news um, in the foreground. And that you're having to balance that, I assume. One's a long-term project that financially is questionable <laughs> at this point, and the others are, are necessary, right? Exactly. And that is, you know, I found it very challenging because if one one of them is going to pay the bills and one of them is sort of, it's really up to me, uh, you know, with the book. It's I really have to be disciplined. And it's something that I'm learning is, is how to juggle those two, those two things and also to be disciplined enough to say, you know, even though I don't have a deadline, I'm st- I still want to write X amount of words today. Now, if I uh, my research was correct, you've already co-authored one book, uh, um, um, Bloomberg's uh, Impact on New York, uh, uh, what Mayor Bloomberg did to protect the environment of New York that didn't get a lot of headlines, right? Yeah, exactly. That was uh, an ebook actually, that I did with a, a co-author co-author at Inside Climate News uh, that came out in 2013. And it really came about in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, which hit New York in 2012. And really kind of, just like any natural disaster, laid bare how ill-prepared the city was and how vulnerable the city is uh, to the effects of climate change, hurricanes, rising sea levels, etc. And so in response to Sandy, the Bloomberg administration really began to pursue a lot of ambitious um, climate resiliency programs, environmental programs, and in fact was building on a lot of the work that had already been in place. So uh, we decided to tell that story. How does a city decide it's going to tackle this issue? Also, uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg kind of being the mayor of New York, wanting to have a kind of a national profile as well and leading other cities and showing other places how it can be done. Did you like that process, the ebook? Did you like writing and editing and and doing a long form like that? I did, and it was um, it was great because the editor we were working with is uh, a phenomenal editor and really you know had an eye for where we could make things more interesting with personal detail, kind of telling the story. Uh, 
from a narrative perspective and helping us avoid getting bogged down in the bureaucracy or the wonkiness. The, the challenge when you're doing a long-form story is that you learn a lot. You talk to a lot of people. And if you were to include them all, it would be the most boring book ever. So you really have to learn how to tailor it down. And I really like that process. Do you find that you have a gift for translating scientific data and scientific information into understandable lay terms for a, a lay audience? Or, or is that something you've learned or something you try to curate daily with yourself? Yeah, I think it's something that I'm always working to improve. Um, the The interesting thing is I don't have an engineering background. I don't have a scientific background. So for me, actually, sometimes it's it's I'm asking questions at a very, very basic level because I don't necessarily understand things at the complex level. But I think as a journalist, that is helpful because then I'm able to tell tell that pass that knowledge on to readers in a way that's not intimidating or over, overly technical. Um, but there are, of course, challenges. The more you get to know something, you kind of learn the acronyms and the shorthands, and you have to reel yourself back and remember, okay, I want somebody who doesn't know anything about this topic to pick up the story and say, oh, okay, that's how that works. Do you work or uh, have others work with you with infographics or anything to, to make your stories come more alive? Yes. Um, when I worked for uh, in different newsrooms like International Business Times and Mashable especially, and to some extent at Inside Climate News, there were dedicated graphics teams. And I love that because there are tools. Um, that said, there are tools that um, I can use to build different charts and graphs and to kind of input data and explain things visually. But when you can work with people who really know what they're doing, it's great. They really bring it can really bring a story to life and know the science behind it and how people read it and how they're going to use it, right? Exactly. And when you can visualize something that's very sort of numbers intensive, I think it's people can kind of understand it better than reading maybe like 20 lines of you know uh, different numbers and things like that. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to shift a little bit. Um, when you write about the environment or a particular aspect of, of the environment, 
Do you walk a fine line between being reporter and being advocate? And if you do, how, how do you personally deal with that? That's a really interesting question, and it's one I think about a lot because I don't see myself as an advocate. I see myself as a reporter. But at the same time, I am someone who also kind of accepts and acknowledges the scientific consensus that global warming is happening, that there's a need to transition to clean energy. And so that certainly influences the way that I look at the world and the way that I approach stories, because when I'm writing about clean energy, I am thinking about it as something that is necessary. When I'm writing about global warming, I'm thinking about it as something that is happening and is going to get worse as emissions rise and the planet warms. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's, as a, as a journalist, it's not my responsibility to promote certain policies or promote certain politicians. I think we need to be careful to keep a critical eye and continue to be skeptical in a way of um, ideas and things like that. So it it's... um. But yeah, it can, it can be challenging because you want to be fair, absolutely. You want to be accurate. You want to be truthful. Um, but it's also impossible to separate yourself from something like that. Specifically, how do you deal with false equivalencies? I mean, do you, uh, as you're talking about climate change and you're, you just said that it's established and most people believe that it is and it's scientifically based – do you still go to the other side that, you know, spouts that it's all in our imagination and it's just a hoax? No, I don't. And I think in journalism in general, there has been a, a, a recognition that that, it, that false balance is no longer necessary because you're – when you – um, include a, a kind of a, a fringe or an alternate theory in a story, you're giving it equal weight to the scientific consensus of thousands of scientists who have worked on thousands of peer-reviewed paper. So they're not really the same thing. And I think it's ultimately more confusing. Um, but that said, I, I do absolutely think there are times when it's important to include contrarian viewpoints. One example might be if I'm interviewing a, um, an individual who's a local water official or somebody who is uh, living on the coast dealing with rising sea levels. I've interviewed many people who are in those scenarios and they, they say, no, I don't think this has anything to do with global warming. I don't think that's real. And I think that's interesting to include because it shows the larger cultural context. So I'm not necessarily saying one way or the other whether I think, uh, you know, whether what they're saying is scientifically correct or not. But I'm saying this is what they think, and here's the situation that they're in. In your particular area of interest, at least from an outsider's perspective, there looks like there's a confluence of politics and science. How do you sort that out? Do you deal with the politics of environmental cleanup or regulations and all the things that, that we as lay people hear about? Or do you stick strictly with the science? Oh, I think politics is a huge piece of it, um, especially when you're talking about regulations to, for example, uh, reduce carbon emissions from coal plants or to increase uh, uh, renewable energy development, things like that. I think um, I 
and it's it's difficult to separate the policies from the politics because a lot of it is based on rhetoric, is based on um, sort of something bigger than the actual thing that's being regulated. So I think that it's a very important piece of the conversation. And as a reporter, it's also it can be challenging or, you know, you should challenge yourself to understand where different people are coming from. You know, maybe there's somebody who's staunchly opposed to something, but they have an agenda to to promote. And so it's important to be cognizant of that. All the regulations that uh, under the current administration are being rolled back or or eliminated, uh, do you see that having an impact on what you report? Yeah, it's interesting. Or is it too soon? Well, I kind of I started the fellowship in the fall of 2017 and have been freelancing, so I've actually stepped outside of that breaking day-to-day coverage. But at the beginning of the Trump administration, I did write more about, um, for example, what was happening in the Environmental Protection Agency under right. Scott Pruitt. Um, so it's yeah, I have I have covered it. It's it it was. Um, kind of a new world for me and I think a lot of reporters because things have been going in one direction for so long in terms of making progress, sort of this agreement, this tacit agreement that these things need to happen. And then you just see it sort of unravel. And it's um, it was something that I, I hadn't encountered before. And, and something you had to probably step back and look, how am I going to report this? Right. I mean, you you can report the details of it, but how am I going to report the impact uh, of these things? Exactly. Yes. And in terms of the impact, I think that it is um, maybe too soon or or, you know, in a few years, we'll be able to see really what the ripple effect has been. Um, And I think it's challenging, too, because a lot of what we hear is. oh, I'm going to do this, or I, I'm threatening to do this, but, you know, trying to figure out what's, what has actually happened, you know, what, what is, what's the real effect on the ground? I think that's um, something we're still figuring out in real time. Let's get back to ethics for a moment. What ethical sort of quagmires do you always see on the horizon and try to avoid? Or, this this area seems like it might be rife with ethical issues. Uh, you know, science, bad science maybe uh, that you're prom- promoting by writing about it, or or uh, people who are trying to advance a particular product or or something. Uh, talk about the overall ethics of being an environmental journalist. It's interesting because there are so many landmines that you can set off. You know, if you are writing about nuclear, you're going to encounter a lot of very passionate, opinionated people on both sides. If you're writing about natural gas, same thing. And as a reporter, uh, you know, from an ethical point of view, it's, I think it's it's really important to understand the topic, to understand the perspective, get many different perspectives. Um, and in terms of covering science, I think that is always interesting to me because uh, there's a um, kind of a, a tendency when something new and exciting comes out to want to say, oh, look at this cool thing. And I think readers really respond well to that. And to some extent, um, we might write more about Tesla because readers like Tesla stories. And so the challenge there, though, is to 
be able to, you know, throw cold water on it when it's necessary and say, actually, Tesla is not meeting its numbers. Elon Musk is doing some weird things. The scientists who said this thing could work um, exaggerated their claims. But I th- so I think it's a balancing act. I think you say, here's what we know. Here's this exciting thing. It could potentially be exciting. But here are sort of the all the caveats. Do you have people hustle you in this kind of reporting, trying to get you to do a certain story or tailor it a certain way or uh, talk to a certain person? Uh, it, it seems like when you're in when you're reporting the whole area of science innovation uh, and environment, that there would be great potential for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think every industry group, every company has a a public relations firm that they work with. Um, I've had um, stories that I've written before and and people from industry groups will call me up afterward and say, actually, no, that's, you know, you should be thinking about it a different way. What really rankles me is when people tell me how I should be thinking about something. (laughs) Because it's like, it's okay if you want to give me the information, you want to tell me who to talk to, but don't tell me what to think. That's my job. Yeah, give give me a list of people that you might want me to talk with, and I'll assess as I go along. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, sort of last question area. What what should we be looking at in in the future? Sometimes I think people uh, lack interest in environmental issues just because they can't understand them. They're so big and so complicated and so intertwined that they can't sort them out. If you're talking to the average person in our audience, what should they be looking at in the next year or two? What what should they be focusing on? Oh, there's so many areas. Um, Well, I cover clean energy, and and I think that energy development in general is um, so interesting. But I think it's happening not just at this massive utility scale. It's happening also kind of on the local scale with rooftop solar projects or batteries, um, electric cars, and things like that. So I think as people see these stories, um, kind of just place it in this bigger context that economy, the energy systems, they are changing. They have already changed. And it's kind of, from that perspective, really fascinating to see, you know, you're living in the middle of this transition and pay attention to these stories because it's going to shape the world that you live in in 10, 20 years. I know wind is one of the clean energies that that, uh, that you and others uh, look at. And it's gaining popularity uh, across the country in, in certain areas. And then we have a president who goes, this is, this is all bogus. This is, this is not real. How, how do you deal with that as a reporter? That is such a tricky thing that I think about often because the temptation or what I would rather do, would rather have reporters do, is just not talk about it because just ignore it exactly but i think that because it is the president it rises to a certain level um so i think that the appropriate response and i've seen a lot of um, reporters do this in recent days is just say very plainly like that is incorrect it's not a political thing it's that is not scientifically correct there's no other way around it so i think there's a need to respond but i wish we could just sweep it under the rug sometimes. And go on. Mm-hmm. You, and too much attention's being paid to some of those statements. 
Exactly. Because he could say anything and everybody will pay attention to it. But And he sort of does. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but the response, the sort of the fact check, that doesn't get nearly as much attention. Right. And people hear these sound bites and they internalize them. Maria, best of luck with your freelancing and your upcoming book. Keep us posted. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Today, we've been talking with Maria Gallucci, award-winning science reporter, about this unique form of journalism. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please take a moment and rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.